of all of the difficult riddles in life, one of the hardest ones comes when we suffer greatly and we ask ourselves, or maybe we ask God or others, why is this happening to me? And I don't mean big picture, why do we suffer? Why are there hard things in the world? I mean, when you go through a particular thing and you're looking at God and you're wondering, why this? Why me? Why now? God, what are you doing right now? Now, big picture, the Bible gives us some very good answers, very satisfying answers, and it gives Christians great hope as well. We learn in the pages of the Bible that suffering and death and grieving entered the world through sin, that had we never rebelled against God, these things would not be here. And that adds up, that makes sense. It's terrible, but it's true and it's good. And we also get great hope as Christians from the pages of the Bible, great hope that Jesus will return and he will raise the dead and our mourning will be turned into joy. And then when he does this, he's going to restore all things and make all things new so we can go through suffering with some big picture explanation of why it is like this. And great hope if we're believers in what is coming next. Then we have the promise of Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. It's a big picture. The Lord's giving us what we need. What we often don't get is an explanation from God. Here is why this particular hardship is in your life right now. Here's what I'm doing with this particular difficulty in your life. Rarely does he peel the curtain back and say, this is what I'm up to right now. And that can leave us vexed, wondering, not just suffering, but suffering in the dark, saying, God, why is this? This doesn't add up. Why is this happening? I was taking counsel with a man once who had, uh, he had called our church, asked me to come out and visit. I didn't know him before this, and he wasn't part of our church, but he just looked for a Bible-believing church and asked for a pastor to come out. And he told me his story. He had had a surgery recently, and the surgery went really poorly to the point that he was in that moment disabled, and maybe for a long time, or maybe he'd be able to recover. And both the insurance company and the hospital were giving him this runaround and evading liability, and so there was all kind of hassle there. Never mind the fact that he just wanted to go back to work and do his job and couldn't do that. So great suffering in his life. And, and he just asked me, he said, does the Bible have anything to say about why I'm going through this right now? And I gave him what I just gave you a moment ago, you know, the sin brought death and suffering into the world, hope in the resurrection, things like that. And he thought for a minute and he said, that, that is profound. And then he said, it really doesn't explain particularly what I'm going through though, does it? And I said, no, no, it really doesn't. He said, so, okay, so why is God doing this in my life? And I, I didn't have an answer for him. Because very often God takes good things from us and he gives to us no explanation for why he's doing it. That, that riddle, that tension of, God, why didn't you explain why this is happening? That is what the book of Job is about. It addresses that tension, that particular suffering in the dark aspect of our lives. It answers it profoundly. But even it doesn't give that explanation we're looking for. Instead, what it does is give us help living wisely without 
an explanation. Before we get to today's text, I'll tell you the story of Job. Those of you that have been following along with our Bible reading plan have read through it, probably understand some of it, but it's a long, difficult to understand book, so I'll give you a recap here. One of the reasons Job is so hard, there are really three big reasons I think Job is really hard to understand as you read it. The first is that it is just so long, right? Chapter count in the, I think it's 42 chapters long, and it's one story that is mostly just a conversation. When was the last time you read a novel and a conversation lasted 42 chapters in that novel? Right? That's a long, drawn-out narrative. On the other hand, Jesus tells a parable, and it's over in a paragraph. Right? You can remember the beginning when you're at the end. It's easy to digest. Sometimes he even gives you the meaning of the parable right at the end, and so you, know, you don't have as much work cut out for you. If you want to even get the plot line of Job, you have to do 42 chapters of reading and remember the beginning when you're at the end. That's tough to keep all of that digested. Not only that, but much of it is a conversation that takes place through poetry. Poetry is beautiful, often more beautiful than just standard sentences, prose, but the price is that it's less clear. When you want to say something clear, you say it in sentences. When you want to say something beautifully, you might refer over to poetry, and it may not be as clear as a result. So the meaning is sometimes hidden behind this poetry. And if that weren't hard enough, the points that it is making are so very profound that they're really kind of above our pay grade sometimes. So even the message it's giving us is, if you can get it, it's, whoa, that is profound. So here we are trying to open this very long book that is largely hidden behind poetry. And if we do get to the meaning, it's something that's really going to blow our minds and be hard for our hearts to grasp and understand. All that to say, we've really got our work cut out for us. And so before we even read today's text, I need to tell you the story of Job and get us all the way here. That may take time. It will take time to get to the meat of this sermon, but stay with me. And I think that it will pay off in the end when we get to the reading and the meeting we'll get from it. So Job's story works like this. Very first verse, he is introduced as a very, very righteous man. And the text uses four things to describe him. Blameless, upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. Now, the Old Testament has a handful of phrases for a really righteous person, and most of them are piled up on Job right there. So this author is going to great lengths, even in the beginning, to show us this man is very righteous. And not only that, but twice after this, God brags about how righteous Job is. Now, how many people who have ever lived would earn bragging rights from God about how righteous they are? But God is speaking to his archenemy, Satan, and saying, have you considered my servant Job, who is blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil? Chapter later, he speaks to Satan again. And a third time you read the phrase, he is blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Along the way, there's a lot of descriptions about really righteous things that he does and sacrifices that he offers. And I'm sure he really needs to offer them. This guy's going above and beyond in righteousness. So we're left with this impression that this man is much more righteous than I am. That's what a reader's left. This is a really righteous guy. Even if I'm righteous, he's very righteous. And not only this, but he is one of the greatest men in the East. 
He may live a few generations after Abraham. It's tough to tell really when this is. He lives over in the east and is one of the greatest men there. Very wealthy, lots of possessions, many livestock, uh, many people working for him, beautiful, many children, great wives. He's got it all. So this is a guy who has everything. Great righteousness, all the stuff. I mean, he's one of the greatest men who ever lived. And then... Without explanation, God takes it all from him. His children all die at the same time. All the possessions, gone. And he hears the report and he he weeps. And God does not explain to him why this happens. But Job just says, "I, I, I came with nothing. I will leave with nothing. Blessed be God's name. And so in all this, he doesn't sin. Then... In one more stroke, God takes his health from him. So now he is very sick, as it says, loathsome sores from the crown of his head to the end of his foot all over his body, Uh, sits down, probably thinks that death is coming next and just sits down and gets ready to die. As if that weren't enough, his wife turns on him and says, curse God and die. And he, in righteousness, corrects her and rebukes her and says, no, don't speak like this about God. Lord gives, Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it goes ahead and says, and all this, Job did not sin. He didn't charge God with wrong in all of this. So that sets the stage for three of his friends to come over and mourn with him. They sit together on the floor for a week in silence in great grief. Now, all of that takes place in two chapters, right? Then, all of a sudden, the story slows down a lot. Now, Job speaks. He speaks first. And what happens next is a 29-chapter-long argument between Job and his three friends. Right? Two chapters for all that before. Then they argue around and around in circles, back and forth and back and forth for 29 chapters. And by the end of it, most anybody reads it, they get to the end of chapter 31 and they're just like, I'm lost. Like, what, what is happening? This, this is tough to understand. Even if you get the beginning and the end of Job, the middle is really tough to get. The summary of the argument might be something like this. Job's friends look at him and they say, Job, if, if you're suffering this bad, you did something to deserve it. What'd you do? Repent of whatever you did wrong and everything will be okay. So they assume that if he suffered, he must have done wrong. They urge him to repent before God. Job's response is, I've never done anything wrong in my whole life. Who who among you can prove me wrong? No, I am righteous. In fact, I will look to God and I will tell him how righteous I am. In fact, I don't deserve to be treated like this. I deserve better than this. You know what, God? This is wrong. You have wronged me. I am righteous and don't deserve to be treated like this. So Job's response to them is to defend his own righteousness and say, hey, I don't deserve all of this suffering that I'm going through. Now, if you can pick that out of their arguments, you've got enough to say, "Mm, something's not right about all of this. What is it that's not right about this? And that is what brings us to chapter 32, where a new young man, this one younger than the rest, suddenly enters the picture, came out of nowhere. Evidently, he was there the whole time. He burns with anger at all four of them 
And the reason he is angry tells us what was wrong with their arguments. So in that way, it's kind of an interpretive key for the last 29 chapters of the book. Here are the words of the Lord from Job 32. We're going to read the first five verses. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he burned with anger at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. The words of the Lord. You may have sensed a theme in those words. He burned with anger. Four times you read that in that text. This man burns with anger. And the reason he is angry tells us what is wrong with Job's argument, what is wrong with his friend's argument. And in that way, gives us great wisdom that can help us as we comfort the suffering and as we walk through suffering ourselves. So what we have that we can get from this text is first two pieces of profound wisdom about our suffering, which if we receive them, will also point to our need for Jesus and will help us to rejoice in this gospel that's available to us. So two really practical things. It's going to feel practical for a while, and then we'll land in the end about how these words point us to our need for Jesus and this gospel that we celebrate. Let's walk through the verses here and see what's going on here. Let's look at verse one first. We get a really strong indicator that Job is in the wrong here. He was righteous before, but evidently he's not anymore. And that is, the three men ceased to answer him because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, if you know the Proverbs well, that might ring a bell with a proverb. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes or righteous in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So something's, something's not right. Job did something wrong here. Maybe we're about to find out what it is. That's enough to tell us that Job has gone from being blameless and upright to he has done something wrong here. Maybe we'll find out what it is. Actually, in verse 2, we do find out what it is. Verse 2 says, Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. And here it is. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. That's what Job did wrong. Now, we'll, we'll lay hold of that later and unpack what that means. What did Job do wrong, though? He justified himself instead of justifying God. All right, we're going to verse 3. Here we learn what the three friends did wrong. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends, and here's why. Because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. So these three men start off by telling Job how wrong he is and how greatly he must have sinned before God. But they examine him for 29 chapters and never find any fault in him. All right, so just empty, false accusations. These guys think that they are wise, they can figure it out. They go ahead and accuse him of wrong, 
but it's not just to accuse somebody of wrong when you don't know what they did wrong, right? When you can't say, well, here is this thing I saw you do that the scripture rebukes. When you don't have a, here are two or three witnesses that all say you did this wrong thing so we confront you about this. No, they just say, you're wrong. We just know it. And that makes Elihu burn with anger. You can't, you can't do that. You have to have good evidence to say that someone is wrong and they have nothing. They found no answer. In verse four, we see some wisdom that I won't go too deeply into now, so I'll just, uh, later, so I'll just lean into it a little bit now. Verse four, we see that Elihu waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. So part of the funny thing about the story here is that this whole thing has gone on and you, this is the first time you read about this character and you're kind of like, well, where did he come from? Like it, the whole story just ignored him up until now. Why is that? Well, because he was the younger man. And even though these older men were descending further and further and further into folly, he waits until they are done before he brings his words of correction. Now, Every other character in the story, except for God himself, gets rebuked at some point. This Elihu is the one who never gets rebuked. God will show up later. He will rebuke Job. He will rebuke Job's three friends. Job rebuked his wife for her wrong. Of course, nobody rebukes the Lord rightly because no one can. But this man, Elihu, he never, he never gets corrected. He's the only one who makes it through unscathed. Part of that is because he has the wisdom to, even though he's right and he is going to correct them with at least some very true things, and even though they are descending further and further into folly, he lets the older men talk themselves to exhaustion. He waits till they finish to give his corrective word. Now, for those of us who are younger, there is wisdom there we need to latch onto very much. It is rare as a young person that you have the wisdom that your elders lack. It can happen. It happens here, but it's shocking and rare. When it, usually, you think you know more than your elders, and you don't actually know more than your elders. But what we see from Elihu's wisdom here is that even when you actually have the wisdom that they need you still got to let them talk it out first. You still have to have enough honor and respect for them to let them empty the words and then offer what you have to say. Now, is this not a far cry from how we treat the younger and the older in our world? How much are we looking to the young for cues and clues on everything from how to wear your hair to what shoes to buy to what clothes to wear to how to work technology to everything? We're asking our kids about it all right here. This can set us straight and give us wisdom, especially those of us who are younger. When we are dealing with our elders, there is a need for great honor that must be shown to them. Now, I'll leave that one there. The other pieces of wisdom we'll dive deeper into, but take that one and don't let it go if you're younger. Verse five, when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he burned with anger. Here we see another reason or maybe another way of saying the reason that he was angry at the three men. They talked for 29 chapters and they never got anywhere. Right? They consoled this grieving man, this weeping man for 29 chapters and never said anything helpful, never gave him the answer. Oh, that makes him angry. So from that, we can pull two more pieces of wisdom. The first one is very simply that God does not 
reward every good deed and punish every sin in this life. I'll say that again. God does not necessarily punish every sin and reward every good deed in this life. And that's important because that means whatever you are going through right now is not necessarily a direct result of what you did yesterday. If you're suffering greatly right now, you do not need to look and say, okay, what did I do wrong to deserve this yesterday? Now, we get this from the flaw in both Job's argument and his three friends' flaw, and then the anger that Elihu burns at with them. Remember, Job's friend argument, their argument was, if you are suffering this badly, you must have done wrong, right? That's basically what they're saying to him. That makes Elihu burn with anger. How could you accuse this man of wrong just because he's suffering? You can't do that, guys. He's angry at them. And Job's argument is, hey, I'm suffering like this. I... I don't deserve this. I do good things. I should get good things in return if I do good. What, why is what I'm putting in the machine not what I am getting out of the machine? Why have I done good all of my life and I'm suffering now? That's not right, God. You're treating me wrongly. Both of them are built on the faulty assumption that whatever suffering we're going through right now is because of some evil thing we did last year or yesterday or 10 years ago. Elihu's anger would correct us of that. And if we would embrace it, we would be able to suffer better and better comfort those who are grieving around us. Now, why do we think this way? It's worth asking. Why do we expect naturally that every good deed will be rewarded in this life and every evil deed will be punished in this life? Why do we think that's going to happen like that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that it does sort of work that way. Jesus' ways are good, and when you walk in them, sometimes there are natural consequences to what you do. If you take good care of your spouse and are good to them, it's more likely that your marriage will last longer and be fruitful. Right? And things tend to work this way. Right? If you work hard at your job, it's more likely you'll keep your job and maybe get promoted. And if you spurn wisdom and act foolishly at your job, it's more likely you won't be able to keep the job. Where we go too far is when we say that every time we get exactly what is coming to us. Now, sometimes there are just bumps in the road and things don't go exactly along with what you have earned. What you put in the machine is not always what you get right out of the machine. What you sow is not exactly what you reap, right? Now, farming works this way too, right? One year you can put a certain seed in a certain ground and tend it a certain way and see what comes up and you say, oh, wow, the, the cucumbers did really well this year. And then the next year you can put the same type of seed in the same ground and tend it the same way and you only get half the crop the next year, right? To some degree you reap what you sow, but it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence every time. And sometimes your cucumbers just don't do well because the weather wasn't great. There was nothing that you could do about it. That's one reason, because Jesus' ways are good, and there is some degree of natural consequence for what we do. The other reason we tend to fall into this trap, into this lie of believing that God punishes every sin and rewards every good deed in this life, is because he has put a number of truths on our heart. You were born with a number of things already written on your heart that nobody had to teach you. And it is possible to receive some of them, but suppress and reject other ones. And 
Here's what I mean. That may not add up just yet, but I'll add it up here. Two things that God has written on your heart that are just, you just want them and they're there, even if you don't believe in them, are justice and eternity. We all want justice, right? We want to see the good guy get rewarded and we want to see the bad guy get what's coming to him, right? And people who make movies and write books know this. And that's why when you go to the movies and you watch it, and by the end of it, you're like, oh, that guy's a good guy. I hope he gets the good things coming to him. You see the bad guy, and you're like, oh, man, I can't wait till he gets what's coming to him. And sure enough, a satisfying ending, the bad guy gets what's coming to him, and the good guy winds up on top, right? Why do movie makers make it like that? Because they know that's what we want. That's on our hearts. We have justice written on our hearts, the desire to see good rewarded and the desire to see evil punished. Nobody had to teach you that it needs to work that way. You were born wanting it to work that way. Something else that is written on your heart is eternity. That is the desire that there must be something more than just this life in this material world that we're living in, right? There's got to be something eternal on the other side. There's got to be some spiritual realm out there. Now, you may not believe that there is a spiritual realm out there. You may not believe that there is eternity after death. I'm not saying everybody believes that. I'm saying when you deny that, everyone's heart kicks against it and says, no, no, no. And you can ask an insistent materialistic atheist, like somebody who is determined that there is nothing in eternity, how long did it take you to come to terms with that? And typically, if they're honest, they're going to say, it took me a while to come to terms with that, right? Because that is not how we want the world to be. We long for eternity. We long for there to be something on the other side. So two things written on your heart, a desire for justice and a desire for eternity. Trouble is, it is possible to suppress or even reject those little voices in your heart, those words that are written on your heart. It's possible to receive some and reject the other. And so maybe you've got a desire for justice here and a desire for eternity here, but let's say you really don't want to think about eternity, so you push that one away. Now, all you've got is this material world, this life, and a craving for justice. And what does that add up to? That adds up to a desire to see every sin punished and every good deed rewarded here in this life, here in this world. Now, the truth is that God will do that in eternity, right? One day he will hold every secret deed and every careless word to account. But if we push that away and say, I don't want to think about that and all we've got is justice and this world, all of a sudden it's just going to add up that, yeah, that's how the world should work. We should get what's coming to us here in this world. And that is why ideas like karma are so alluring. They're really attractive, aren't they? If you've never heard of karma, it's the belief that what goes around comes around. If you do a good deed today, you'll be rewarded with good fortune tomorrow. If you do a bad deed today, you'll be rewarded with bad fortune tomorrow. Entire religions are built on this. A lot of New Age spirituality is built on karma. Much of the Hindu religion is built on karma. Just this desire that whatever we put into the machine, we're going to get that same thing back out. Now, that's alluring at first, right? Because you want there to be justice in the world. You want people to get what's coming to them. So somebody teaches you that, and you're like, yeah, I believe that. I believe that what goes around comes around. That's how it should be, right? But then someone goes through great suffering, 
And if we're going to believe in karma, we have to say, well, serves you right. You must have done something bad. And so some of these false beliefs can just crush suffering people. That's why you see a lot of 20-somethings who are willing to embrace karma. And you don't see very many 85-year-olds who are looking back on a hard life still embracing karma. Why is that? Because it just doesn't hold up to the real world. There's so many ideas like this that just aren't livable in real life. You can't add them up with real life. They sound fun at first, but they crush suffering people. Another idea like this is the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel that some churches even preach. Simple idea that if you give to whatever the Lord's cause is, the church today or whatever today, if you do the right thing today, God will bless you with more prosperity and better health tomorrow. So the idea is like literally you give $100 today, next year you'll have $1,000 in your bank account. Some people are this explicit with this kind of stuff. And that sounds really alluring at first. Like, yeah, God's generous. He loves when he, we give. He loves a cheerful gift. Yeah, I'll give 100 bucks today and hope to get 1000 bucks back next year. But then a year later when you're broke, it just crushes you. Oh, I guess I, guess I didn't give enough and now I need to give even more. I just, it's not workable. It doesn't work in real life. Word of faith movement is the same way, right? If you're sick today, just pray and have enough faith and you will be healed. Now that is attractive to a person who is sick and needs healing. Oh, just have enough faith and I'll be healed today. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, it really gets you excited. And then you keep suffering and it just crushes the suffering person. Huh, guess you didn't have enough faith. Try having more faith and maybe that'll work. Maybe next year you get your healing if you have a little more faith. Can you see how buying into this lie that God rewards every good deed in this life and God punishes every sin in this life can crush suffering people? What instead is the truth? Though, right? If we're, we're going to reject that lie and say, okay, what I'm getting today is not necessarily a one-to-one -one correspondence to what I did yesterday. This is not necessarily the past coming back to haunt me. Well, what is the truth? What can we believe? Here's the, the truth of the Bible. The truth is that everything that we have, every good thing you've ever had, is an undeserved gift from a generous God. The truth is, if we add up everything that everyone in this room deserves, everything that we can look to God and say, you owe me this because I'm good enough for it, we get nothing. Not a one of us deserve a single thing. Now, that's a harder truth to embrace at first, right? But if you're willing to follow it through to the end, it is so very rewarding. Because if you can embrace that you don't deserve a thing, that everything you have is an undeserved gift, then you suddenly start to look at all of this stuff and you realize how very generous God is. You look at the shoes on your feet. You think, I didn't even deserve those shoes. And God gave me those shoes. And you get in your car. I didn't deserve this car. And you get to drive it home. And anything you have, you snuggle one of your kids or you call one of your grandkids on the phone or your parents if they're still here. And I didn't deserve to get to have that conversation with my dad. Every single one of these things, an undeserved gift. Now we can see how very generous God is and how much he gives to us. So that's a harder truth to embrace. But if you'll take it, it rewards you much more in the end. It also helps a lot 
when you're suffering. Because now you're free from having these conversations with yourself that say, what did I do to deserve this? How much of, I mean, when you're suffering, really, how much of the agony of suffering is these terrible conversations we have with ourselves? Oh, oh, God, what did I do to deserve? Did I do something wrong? Is that why this is, God, are you really good? Is God good? Can I trust God? What's going on? What is God doing here? Like, we ask all these hard questions. We don't have answers to any of them. It's just agonizing. But if you can see that every good thing we ever had was a gift from God, well, then you're freed from all of those agonizing questions. Oh, I didn't deserve to have it in the first place, and God was good to give it to me. The hard message of the book of Job is that God is allowed to take everything from anybody at any time without explaining it to them. That's the hard side of it. The blessed side of it is that he gives so much to creatures who don't deserve a single thing. When you add up all that you have, is that God not a God worth worshiping? Is that not a generous God that we can look to with thanks? If we can embrace it, then we're free to give thanks for all the good things. Then we're free in our suffering to not agonize about why it's happening and how could God do this to me. Instead, we can just say, you know what? I didn't deserve it when I had it. Oh, what a blessing to be able to do that. That's the first piece of wisdom we get from it. God does not always reward every sin. I'm sorry, reward every good deed and punish every sin in this life. No, he waits for eternity to do that. Here's the second point of wisdom. And this has more to do with when we are comforting those who are grieving. And uh, one way to say it might be this. When you have a loved one who is suffering or grieving, that is not your opportunity to show them how wise you are with really good words. Another way to say it is when you know someone who is suffering or grieving, don't look for something very profound to say that will change everything for them. We get this from verse 5 and the fact that the three friends talked for 29 chapters and never got Job anywhere. Elihu burns with anger when he sees that there's no answer in the mouths of these men. The idea here is, is guard yourselves from being like these three friends who come and give Job 29 chapters of nothing. 29 chapters of things that don't help the suffering. Some of you have suffered greatly in life. And you could tell me stories about unhelpful things that people said to you, I bet. Because we just have this tendency to try to get that silver bullet in there, try to say that thing that will make it all better. And really what we'll end up doing is hurting people. Well, what's going on there? Well, it comes from a good desire, right? I mean, the wise are able to speak life-giving words into hard situations and give out wisdom and help people and bless people when we all should want to be wise. So it's good to want to be that person who can say that really encouraging word and help that person go through a hard time. That's a good desire. The trouble is, if this is one of the great riddles of life, why am I suffering this particular way? We just don't have the wisdom to solve that for our friends. And if you don't have the wisdom to bring the answer, it doesn't help to pontificate about it and try to help them. What you'll probably do is say something unhelpful. 
So maybe you can relate to the feeling. Maybe one of your friends has, uh, their loved one has died and you're at the, at the viewing. Uh, we've even had to do this recently a few times as a church. And you're there and there's the long line, right? And you're seeing everybody go one at a time to the grieving family and hug them and talk to them a little bit. And for some of us, this burden comes onto us that says, oh no, my time is coming soon. What am I gonna say, right? Because really, like, what do you say? But we feel like there's this need to say something really profound and helpful for them. The point here would be in that kind of a situation, just free yourself from that need to find something really good to say. You don't need to find the silver bullet that's going to make it all better. You may have opportunity to encourage your friend with the resurrection like Paul tells us to do in 1 Thessalonians. You might get to do that if the time is right. Hopefully the pastor in that funeral will get to do that and proclaim the resurrection. You can comfort each other with those words. But when it comes to this, hey, I've got the answer. Here it is. That desire, that's what we've got to let go of and say, okay, I'm not going to be the wise one who says that awesome thing and tries to make it better for you. No, what the humble do instead is they say, here's a casserole. Call me if you ever want to talk. Now, that doesn't sound sage-like, does it? But that's what they need. All right, the humble say, here's a hug. Let me hold you close. I'm here if you need me. I love you. I'm praying for you. That's, I mean, Solomon's not going to sit before his sons and offer that sage-like. That's not glorious and wonderful. No, but it is just what they need. It's a hard point to make clear, but the idea is don't try to find that zinger that's going to make their life all better. No, they just need you to be there. Even Job's friends model this for a week when they sit in silence with him, right? It's not till they open their mouths that they get into trouble. Maybe another way to say this point is that a grieving or suffering friend is one of the few situations in life where you get all the points for showing up. Most situations in life you got to show up and you got to do something, right? You got to show up and be smart. If you want to keep your job, well, you do need to show up on time, but you also have to do good work there. And if there's a meeting, you got to say something smart and contribute to the meeting, right? There's a certain level of action and wisdom and things that you got to do to make it. For your marriage at home, if you're married, yeah, you do need to show up, but you don't get all the points for showing up. You also need to act a certain way and take care of each other and be kind of all kinds of work that you got to do in your marriage to really get like full credit and do a good job. Having a grieving and suffering friend, though, is not like that. It's, it's different from that. When you have a suffering and grieving friend, you get all the points just for showing up and not doing anything. You get all the points for just sitting across the table with a cup of coffee in your hand until the cup goes cold and never really saying anything that you felt like was helpful. Great, 100%. Great job. You can leave, right? In fact... Once you show up, you can only lose points by trying to be smart and wise. Your friends just need you to be there. That's what they need. And so resist the temptation then to be like Job's friends and hunt for that wise thing that solves the riddle for your friend. That's not what they need. No, they they just need you to show up and be there. Okay, our final point this morning is the most important. I'll give it to you in two parts, and and we'll do the math together. Okay. On one hand, we we heard earlier how righteous Job was, right? Uh, 
blameless, upright, God-fearing, turns away from evil. Man, nobody gets a resume like that in the Old Testament. This is a righteous guy. And we were left with a sense that he is more righteous than we are, right? That if we take the most righteous person in this room, put him up against Job, Job wins in righteousness. He's more righteous than any of us. We hold that on one hand. On the other hand, we learn here in this text that Job has no right to justify himself before God. His sin wasn't actually something that he had done. It was the very fact that he looked up to God and said, God, look how righteous I am. I I deserve good things. So Job is especially righteous, more righteous than any of us. And he does not have the right to look to God and say, I'm a righteous person, God. You should give me good things because I've earned them. Now, if that is true of Job, here's my question for you. What does that say about any of us? Who among us could look up to God and say, look at all these good things I've done. You should bless me. I've earned it. Friend, if Job can't do that, nobody can do that. And so this then hammers home into our hearts the truth that it must be that faith alone can save a person. Because if Job can't earn his way in, if Job can't go to God with a resume and it be good enough for him to even get material blessings, who among us could earn eternal life? The truth is, if all of even the temporary blessings in life cannot be earned, if nothing you have is earned, but they're all good gifts from God, then that means that even if you did put some work in, the only way to receive anything on this earth is to have it freely given by a generous God. Now, if everything you have in your life can only be received as a generous gift from a kind God, then it must even more be the case for eternal life. How could any of us receive eternal life unless it were freely given by a generous God? If that is true of the shoe on your left foot, it is true of eternal life. If you could walk home today and that shoe slip off your foot and slide down the road, let's say it's two weeks ago and there's snow everywhere, it slides down the road, into the drain, down into the sewer, and gone forever. You might be frustrated, but you would not be able to look up to God and say, God, I I deserve that shoe, right? That's just one shoe. And we can't look up to God and say that we deserve that. Who among us could look to him, approach the threshold of heaven, and say, I deserve to have eternal life there. If Job can't do it, you can't do it. Jesus tells a story to the same effect. Uh, He tells a story of a, a place where there was a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to worship God together. And the Pharisee thinks himself a very righteous person, has a reputation of a very righteous person. And he looks up to God and he said, God, thank you that I am not like other people. Here are all the good things that I do. And the tax collector, having a reputation as a very wicked man, won't even look up to God. And he, and he grieves, hits himself in the chest, weeping. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And the point is so clear that Jesus never has to say it. He just asks the question, which one do you suppose walked away justified before God? And I hope you know in your heart, it's not the Pharisee. It's not the one who gave his resume to God. No, it's the one that asked for forgiveness and salvation to be freely given. This is the way of every gift we receive from God. And it's true of forgiveness as well. If you would be forgiven before God, if you would have not temporary flourishing life, but eternal flourishing life in his coming kingdom in heaven, friend, you can't earn it. The only way to receive it is to have it freely given to you. And so what you must do is you must look to God's son, Jesus, who willingly died as a payment for sin and said, by the blood of this Jesus, because this Jesus died, would you give salvation to me? Would you give forgiveness to me? Would you give eternal life to me? And so that's my final call to you this morning, to look to heaven and say, God, I cannot earn salvation, but on the grounds of Jesus' death, would you give it? Let's pray.